Welcome to the Alliance for a Viable Future podcast, where we talk with social impact leaders about how to enliven the good work that we are all doing in order to protect life for the generations to come. I'm your host and founding director of the Alliance, Lev Natan. If you'd like to say thank you, you can leave a review on iTunes, share this with a friend, and make a tax-deductible donation on our website, allianceforaviablefuture.org donate. We hope these conversations strengthen our network so that we can grow our collective impact and better coordinate our efforts. Thank you so much for tuning in. All right, welcome everyone to Alliance for a Viable Future podcast. I'm your host, Lev Natan. Today, I'm really grateful, inspired, and have to say humbled too, uh, to be here with my friend, colleague, community brother for many years, Dave Ford. Uh, He is the founder of Soul Buffalo Expeditions, which I'll share a little bit about. And then most recently, and what's really exciting, is he has created with his team uh, Ocean Plastics Leadership Network. It's a global network of organizations, and that's really what we're going to talk about today. just want to give a little context uh, for why we're talking. Uh, Dave and I met through our local community friends and and community about five, six, seven years ago. And it's just been amazing to watch you first go through a shift, uh, you know, leaving New York City, leaving uh, your background in marketing and sales and taking that step back and then saying, how am I going to bring together my deeper values and my sense of purpose? And then you you know, exploded with, with Soul Buffalo, which is, is just so inspiring, bringing uh, CEOs and executives around the world to hotspots, you know, where you, you can really see and experience what's going on in, in regards to climate right now, to, to the melting glaciers. And you can talk about some of the expeditions uh, and then how that all really brought your focus to uh, your commitment to the cleaning up the oceans and the plastic in the oceans. And then last year, the Ocean Plastics Leadership Summit that you brought, which I want you to share about in your own words. And then that led to, you know, the announcement of this leadership network that's moving forward, you know, just in the last few days it was announced. So it's so exciting to be talking with you right now. So thanks for being here, having this conversation. Thanks for having me, Lev. Excited to to dig in here, man. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, yeah, let's just begin with, you know, what you're up to right now, just to give a brief introduction. And then I'd love to hear kind of some of the, the background and, uh, you know, your, your personal journey. But let's just start with, you know, what just happened. And I, I'd love to hear, like, wow, you know, how does it feel that this is just going live? Sure. Yeah. So yesterday we announced officially the Ocean Plastic Leadership Network and uh, did a press release. We have 
all 50 organizations, a few more like 52 organizations aligned with the Ocean Plastic Leadership Network. And they're some of the biggest nonprofit, NGO and corporate leaders in the world have joined this network. And we have uh, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Dow Chemical, P&G, Nestle Waters, Carnival Corporation, Berry Global, which makes a lot of packaging that you'll find when you're going to the grocery store, Kimberly Clark, uh, the Clorox company, HP, and then the World Wildlife Fund, uh, WBCSD, which is the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, Conservation International, Greenpeace, the Recycling Partnership. I can could keep on going, but a lot of leading organizations that are dedicated to this issue. And it's our idea through this network to bring all of the leading organizations, activists to industry. So think like Greenpeace is one of the leading activist organizations and Dow Chemical is one of the biggest plastic resin producers under the same umbrella, under the, into the same organization. It's all rooted in experience, which is kind of goes back to our expedition uh, expertise and taking groups all over the world. And the idea is, yeah, let's take these leaders and put them in the heart of the ocean plastic crisis and at the same time drive towards solutions. So bringing all these brilliant minds together in unique experiences, but then driving to solutions to help solve this really complex problem. And it's a really nuanced problem and there's all kinds of sort of ins and outs. And it's uh, it's definitely not the kind of thing that any one organization can solve. I mean, it's a major thing, but there's a you know, there's a lot of different approaches and we want to represent all of them and organizations that are representing all of them. Very inspiring. It's compelling for, for me and for the Alliance, uh, which I look forward to talking about. And before we go into, you know, what it is that, you know, some of the initiatives that are coming out, you know, I read the uh, press release that just came out, that article in Forbes. I'd love to hear, you know, from a leadership perspective for yourself, you know, this hasn't just come out of nowhere for you. I'd love to hear like, what are some of the moments in your journey, pivotal moments that was like, okay, I'm going to move this forward. Uh, it's going to be challenging or, you know, I don't know if I can do it. And, but, but this is what I'm committed to. Sure. I, you know, I would say like my sort of personal philosophy that I've really learned through this entire experience has been really rooted in stoicism there's this incredible book that this guy named Ryan Holiday wrote called The Obstacle is the Way. And that's pretty much how we've gotten here. I mean, it's like one big obstacle after another presenting itself and then realizing that like, that's the opportunity for us to move forward. Like looking at these obstacles sort of square in the eyes. I mean, starting when I, you know, eight years ago, I was like a top sales guy at an ad tech company in New York. It was really high performing, making a lot of money, but not, necessarily fulfilled in what I was doing. And, um, you know, at the same time, really wanted to get into the travel space in general, because it's been such a part of my personal story. When I was 28, I quit my job and traveled for two years and went to Antarctica, went to the Amazon, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, just really like became personally sort of aligned with nature in a way that I never had before. I was always like a, the guy that sat in the bar and watched football. And I still do that a little bit, but it's, uh, that trip opened me up to all these environmental challenges and something that stayed with me and just absolutely, you know, life-defining experience for me. And I got back to New York and I started getting back into what I knew in sales and marketing and advertising. And, um, 
you know, I got to this crossroads in my career where I just wasn't feeling it. And I had an opportunity to partner with an expedition leader that I had met in Antarctica years and years ago and started having those conversations. And right in the midst of all that, I got fired from my job. Some things changed. And that at the time was really, really difficult. I had a lot of, I guess, ego tied up in, in that specific gig and I got fired. And you know, it turned out to be one of the absolute best things that's ever happened to me. And I had a foot in the expedition business, but really what it did was sort of push me right into the deep end, right out of the gate and allowed for me to put 100% of my energy behind it. So I think that maybe is like one of the first pivotal things that happened, you know, and being really grateful that uh, the people I work for realized that my heart wasn't really in what was, uh, you know, how he had, you know, what the company had turned into at the time. So uh, I think that's a really, really good sort of marker there, right? Like sometimes getting fired is an amazing thing. It's funny, I've just been like watching all these Bloomberg ads where Michael Bloomberg talks about in, in his presidential ads about how he got fired when he was 39. And I'm like, you know what? I got fired too. And in pretty similar, <laughs> similar narrative to what he went through. So, so that was, you know, and what, you know, from, from the time that we started the company, I just had all this business to business experience. So I had this really intrepid expedition guide that's been to every country in the world and done 95 Antarctica tours and 70 Arctic tours and had all this incredible experience. And what we were able to do was develop a company that focused on taking business leaders, like using the expertise that I had went out into the world and coupled with the expertise that, that he had, you know, and we just started, sort of started from there. We started taking C-suite teams to Antarctica. We've done a lot of work, conservation work in Africa and in India. We've done a lot of like anti-poaching work in Africa, human wildlife conflict in India. And then when ocean plastics really came on the map, uh, in the zeitgeist, I mean, let's just say it's probably like a five-year arc from where it's been a problem for a while, but where it just became this, you're getting stories in your feed every day about the ocean plastics crisis and about whales beaching and wildlife, you know, being affected and turtles with straws in their nose, where it's really like captured consumer consciousness globally. So we moved into the ocean plastic space and we, uh, our team had the opportunity to charter a ship that was transiting from the Antarctic to the Arctic. Uh, it was a huge investment for us to do this. And we essentially bet the company that we could pull it off. And the Ocean Plastic Leadership Summit's the end result. That happened last May. We had 160 executives on board in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, 500 miles off the coast of Bermuda. And it was just an incredible experience. So there was a lot of obstacles that uh, emerged from the point where we wrote that check to charter the ship and through the execution. But it's been, uh, yeah, it's been an incredible journey. And we've really been, you know, been able to make a difference through convening in this type of way. Thank you. It's amazing to hear that. I know what, what, one thing that comes to mind, well, there's two, two directions. One, I'm really curious about the, the transformations in people, the, the leaders that come on, you know, on these expeditions and then in the summit last year you know, that, that you've witnessed in, in two regards. One is, you know, being, you know, immersed in an island of plastic, you know, going snorkeling in plastic. You know, what did you what what is that experience open up for people who are producing plastic, working on that issue? And, and then the other piece is what opens up when people who aren't normally in the same room, you know, get together and 
talk about uh, a common goal and have a to develop a common agenda. Yeah, you know, I feel like with the ocean plastics crisis, it's a little different than climate change. There are no deniers, right? There's not a there's not some sort of contrary science being put out that's saying the ocean is not the ocean's polluted. All the companies that make plastic at the resin level, the you know petrochemical level, at you know whether they're putting you know consumer packaged goods companies that are putting their products in plastic, plastic, they all know it's an issue, right? So the the idea, one of the biggest hurdles we had to overcome when we started the Ocean Plastic Leadership Network was just this idea that we were going to educate you know clueless executives that didn't have any idea about this. And, you know, we got a lot of pushback there. Like our executives know that this is a problem, right? And, you know, that was one of the sort of obstacles. We initially, the the event was called the Ocean Plastic Summit. And I had like back-to-back calls with big, massive global corporations saying, our executives know this is an issue. They don't need to come out and see it. They know it's an issue. So we changed the name of the of the summit to the Ocean Plastic Leadership Summit. Because really what we're doing, this isn't some sort of clueless boot camp for like your Mr. Burns type characters that are like thinking evil thoughts, you know, evil, evil capitalist thoughts in the corner, right? No, it's about taking the leaders that are inside of these organizations, whether it be from a big petrochemical company or whether it be from an activist NGO and bringing them all together in this really unique setting. So, you know, about 25% of what we do is experiential where you're dropping the executives in the ocean, where I have this aha moment, which are really like the, the bedrock of that is like, they're never going to forget this experience and the people they were with for the rest of their lives and that you can enhance relationships in a matter of days that could take years otherwise. And that is what's the unique thing about, about, you know, a travel experience or a experiential setting is that it'll stick with people. So, you know, I think that a lot of the executives that came on board with us last May, you know, were certainly blown away by the amount of plastic that we found. It's definitely not an island. It's really more like a smog. It's like a microplastic smog, which is even scarier if you think about it, because all the fish eat the plastic. It, it breaks down. You know, we found so much plastic with turtle bites and fish bites. And, um, you know, we found toilet, state, toilet seats and, and toothbrushes and everything that you can imagine out there, but not in like a giant island that's kind of one of the myths in places in southeast asia right after weather events at the caribbean after weather events you can get these sort of huge accumulations but the reality is actually much scarier because when you're out there you know you looks like you know beautiful ocean and then when you get in the water you just find these little fragments of plastic everywhere so i think that was eye-opening in a lot of ways i think there were definitely some execs that were like very you know affected by what they saw but I also think like the the core driver is like moving to accelerated action and bringing these brilliant minds together, you know, and setting, I mean, you're on a boat, you can't get off. Our Wi-Fi cut out and it was amazing, right? We, we didn't think we could like shut the Wi-Fi off, but luckily it was pretty, pretty uh, ruster buster, you know, when you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So, you know, you, you, you go to these conferences where people are just on their phones or, and myself, I'm guilty as charged here or meeting in the hallway, having like tertiary conversations. That wasn't what happened when we were out in the gyre. Like everyone was really dialed and, and, and sitting across from really brilliant people that they didn't know before. And a lot of partnerships emerged. Wow. And so that's just it right there is creating that context, you know, and how, you know, how do you, you know, there must be some or quite a bit of thought uh, into designing conversations too to to bring people into so that they they do move in the right direction 
I'm just thinking about that, you know, what, what the thought is around, you know, how do you just, you know, say, Hey, you know, we have to move in this direction and, you know, or is it as simple as just putting people, you know, on in round tables and saying, Hey, go to work. Well, you know, I think it's, there's different levels of expertise and, and technical expertise. And we're lucky that we have an incredible group of advisors that have helped us architect the learning and the, the labs, for lack of a better way, you know, the, the actual action hub where we're driving to these solutions. So we had 12 labs that were curated around different sort of different spokes in the, in the, on the, on the wheel, different, different problem areas. And we put the right execs in those specific groups. So like, for example, one of the, one of the groups that we drove to is all about like improving consumer consciousness around the types of products they're buying. We go to the grocery store, we all have to buy stuff that's in plastic because it's as of today, food grade plastic is safe. It helps food from spoiling. There's not really a great, you know, uh, replacement yet you know there's there there are replacements but they're significantly significantly more expensive so like the average person can't afford to pay you know 40 percent more for their cling wrap or whatever they're they're normally using right so what we put a bunch of brand leaders and that sell products in big box retail and grocery together to talk about how there could be like an identifier if you're going to buy a hundred percent recycled tube of toothpaste how do you know it you know, and how is it called out in the shopper experience? So that's one of the initiatives we, we have. It's called Zero Hero, which is like you're walking in Walmart and it's not, it's still in formulation and we've had a tremendous amount of conversations. But if you were walking in a Walmart or a Kroger or an, an Albertsons or a Safeway across all these retail experience, experiments, you would know that this is best in class packaging for toothpaste. Now, whether that's just called out with a Zero Hero tag, but it, it gets consumers to think about what they're buying. And to realize that, you know, there's a lot of consumers that will pay more. And there's certain, some, some consumers, it's just an educational experience in the, uh, in the retail environment that they've never had before. And that's really the way, you know, the educating consumers is really like one of the biggest things that we need to do because this is a global problem and everybody's buying this stuff all over the world. And right now there's just, everything's in plastic. Yeah. And, and as, in a sense, it sounds like the, the summit, you know, initiated this network that's then, uh, you know, some of these initiatives that you're talking about didn't exist obviously before, you know, this idea of zero hero or that we're, we need to have a product like this on the market, you know, that this kind of packaging was, was that in the zeitgeist, you know, a year ago? Well, I mean, there's a lot of organizations that are dedicated to a lot of these different sort of areas right like so like waste pickers is another really important there's a, like they projected like two billion people that are picking up trash and that's how they make their living right they're picking up pet bottles that you would get you know your coke or your pepsi or your, your nestle water or you know any beverage that you're drinking nine out of ten beverages are in plastic instead of glass so people are picking this up because there's value in the recycled content for that right so it's like there's these waste picker cooperatives around the world that are doing really good things for people that are members where they're making sure the kids aren't involved picking up the trash they're getting insurance for their members they're doing things the right way so we set up this is a funded initiative that came out of the last summit we set it up so that to make it easier for 
big corporations to source this recycled plastic from these waste picker cooperatives that are largely in the global south or the developing world, for lack of a better way to call it, right? So we had like an organization from Africa, two from India, one from Brazil, and one from Haiti with us on the ship. And we built this sort of working group that's been funded by corporations to help open up these supply chains for them. So that's another example of something that came off, came off of this. But there's a lot of work that's happening in the space, a lot of work that's happening in the consumer consciousness space. So it's like part of the mission of the, of the network in general is to bring all these organizations together so that they can synergize and work together. We saw so much of that. So many different organizations, like there was an organization that was working on river data in India and another that was working for river data in Singapore to try to figure out how much plastic is in these certain river systems. And they were able to come together and realize there were synergies and that they could work together and, and have a bigger data set because they're looking at Singapore and Indonesian rivers versus Indian rivers. And there's synergies there. Two major organizations doing really great work that realized that there was an opportunity to go farther together than they could separately. And like so many different uh, examples of that emerged from the summit that we did. So it's really what we're, and then there was big global packaged good companies that signed offtake agreements with these waste picker cooperatives, meaning they're gonna buy, they, they basically signed purchase orders to source the materials from these cooperatives. So those are like real world examples of like where this is what happens when you stick the right people on the boat. Enjoy this 20 second nature sounds pause to give yourself a moment to reflect. You know, as the kind of convener of the network and when, as the person that's sticking the right people on the boat, you know, how do you, I mean, it's, it's, you know, case by case in a sense, but how do you, um, you know, gauge when it is, when, when it's your job to really facilitate, you know, these kinds of interactions and when something happens, like the support those two companies, you know, doing the river data work, or, or is it just, you know, they, they met each other and, and then they're doing it themselves. Like wh where is it, you know, what's the spectrum of the network's involvement directly in these projects, you know, supporting them to get off the ground and to continue and versus just, you know, convening the people and then they go off and, and make it happen. Well, I think it, 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 sort of a wide range. There's a lot of stuff that just happens organically that we don't have to do anything. Those two examples that I mentioned, the offtake agreement and the river debt, we didn't have anything to do with that outside of finding out about it and just being thrilled. But then some of the bigger working groups where they need help or they need connectivity with other organizations, like we jump in and put our arms around these to try to help get them going. And a lot of times they're owned by NGOs. So two of the funded initiatives that came off of the last summit are owned by NGOs that are uh, really running, going to be running the day-to-day, -day, that are going to be raising money to build the initiatives out. So it, what we do is help bring brands and bring partners that could help fund the initiatives. So really, it's just like you know, sort of an all-hands-on-deck uh, approach. And when it makes sense, we jump in and try to try to help the best we can. And luckily, we have you know a tremendous amount of organizations that are involved in this that we can pick up and get on the phone with at any time to help move the needle.
Mm. It's amazing. Looking at, uh, you know, the, the, the larger context of, you know, the next 30 years is kind of how I'm seeing things, right? From 2020 to 2050 in terms of, you know, bring, keeping things at 1.5 degrees Celsius, with, you know, the global uh, situation. How does ocean plastics fit in to the drawdown uh, project in a sense uh, globally? You know, what, what is it going to, what's going to happen um, or what are the goals or the vision of, you know, the, the network over the next five, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And how does that relate to, you know, healing our global ecosystems? Well, you know, there's definitely a correlation between the plastic issue and the climate issue. And a lot of it has to do with weight of materials. So I think there, there's a lot of arguments out there around we need to keep our beverages in plastic because if we move to glass, it gets way heavier when you're transporting these goods from point A to point B, the carbon levels are a lot higher. So, you know, we're constantly sort of balancing what that looks like. I mean, there's a lot of folks that are out there that say we should only be focusing on climate because that's, you know, the biggest issue, which I would not agree with. I mean, it's, I would I would agree it's the biggest issue, but I would agree that there's, you know, seven million, seven billion people on this planet and we need to be focusing on all of it. So, yeah, we do a lot of work in climate. You know, we've done, like I said, C-suite summits in Antarctica with big corporations. We're doing a summit in Greenland coming up in a few months. So we're, we're, we're kind of always balancing the different, uh, the different issues and, you know, building out networks around them. So, you know, we definitely want to do whatever we can do to help climate, you know, in addition to what we're doing with plastic. In the next 30 years with plastic, I don't think we have that much time. I mean, most of the projections are that we need to really figure this out in the next 10 years in a hurry because the population boom and the amount of goods that are going to be used and the amount of goods that are being plastic goods that are being used in the developing world. So, you know, 15 years ago, this problem wasn't as pronounced because a lot of the you know, people in the developing world weren't using plastic and now they all are right. And in Southeast Asia, which is about 80% of the problem, people in the global South or developing world are using like single use sachets is what they call it. So like, instead of buying a bottle of shampoo, you're buying, you know, like a small sort of ketchup packet of shampoo for lack of a better way to put it. Right. And there's not any value for that type of material right now. So the waste pickers don't pick it up. They'll pick up the bottles. The, they'll pick up the, and it goes right into the ocean. And then it goes into the, and there's this like sort of toxic cocktail of a lot of communities right on the river, monsoon seasons, lack of waste management. So big rains come along and just wash everything right into the rivers that go right into the oceans. And so just to spell it out, I mean, it, it seems, you know, intuitive, but you know, what is the impact of having this plastic in the ocean? It's, it, you know, it sounds to me like it's, you know, killing the ocean or but if you have a sense of the, the biology, biological impact on the ocean. And because I, I do know a little bit about how, you know, the, the oceans when they're healthy are, are actually, I think the, the largest or one of the largest carbon sink uh, with, with the, the algae and the, the, that water can, can hold carbon. So just curious. Well, I think a lot of the health, like human health studies, are, uh, there's a lot that are kind of in the works now, like the toxicology of what happens when we eat fish that have eaten so much plastic. And there's been studies out that we have like eat like as humans on average, like a 
credit card worth of plastic a month that can come through our tap water, can come through microfibers. You know, you wash uh, a running shirt that most of the big fashion companies are making and you put it in your washing machine in New York City. There's little microfibers that come off that you can't even really see that end up in the Hudson River. And that happens all over the world as well. Right. So there's this big stuff that we can see. And then there's small stuff that we can't. There's giant, you know, durable goods that are floating around or like, you know, crates and fishing traps, a lot of fishing gear as well. So we're figuring out the human health impact of, of what's going on. And it definitely has to do, you know, it's very tied up with the seafood, the seafood that's eating, eating so much plastic. Um, but definitely, um, you know, ecosystems are being absolutely you know, turned on their head, especially in the Southeast Asia region, because there's just so much uh, plastic getting into the getting into the oceans over there. Yeah. Well, I think I just have a couple more questions. You said like we don't have we don't have 30 years to solve this problem. You know, we have whatever five, 10 years max. What is what is how do you define this problem being solved? Like when when can you? move on to another topic and say, okay, ocean plastics leadership network. We don't need it. We don't need it anymore. You know, that's the goal. Yeah. Right. We don't want this. How soon can we do that? I mean, I think we're, we're sort of looking at yeah. well, we're not, not, not just how soon, but what, what, what reality would we be in where you can say that and say, okay, now we're going to go do something else. What's the reality, the, the, the vision of, of what that would look like? Well, I mean, I think we kind of maybe need to sort of zoom out a little bit and look at some of the different approaches that are going into this issue. So you have like your activist organizations like Break Free from Plastic is a is a alliance of hundreds of NGOs that are dedicated to shutting off plastic at the tap. So what that means is not making new plastic. Right. And then and they believe that that's the way to do this on the very opposite end of the spectrum. You have an industry that doesn't want to shut shut plastic off at the tap because it's so vital to their business models and there's executives that have jobs on the line that are based on hitting quarterly numbers in this capitalist model that we're on and they really believe that we can innovate out of this through technologies that can essentially the chemical recycling is sort of the the broad term but essentially it means that you can melt down these plastics that don't have um, value today back into their original feedstock so whether that be back into plastic in some cases they're you can turn the plastic into fuel because plastics all comes from oil and gas, you know, mostly. So, you know, the idea, so those are like sort of the divides where you have industry that's driving to innovate our way out of this and the activist organizations that are driving to shut off the taps and everything in between. Right now, I think we're recycling globally at like less than 10%, right? So less than 10% of what gets made is getting recycled. The rest of that's going to landfill or ending up in, back in the environment. So we're going to need to see that recycling uh, number go up significantly, you know, especially in the countries. And there's not infrastructure, so there's going to need to be a big infrastructure bill. There's going to be this consumer consciousness, uh, massive awakening around this issue that's going to have to happen with 7 billion people on this planet. And 99.9% of them are using plastic in some way, shape or form. And, um, and yeah, I mean, and then there's, can we bring new materials that can break down in marine environments in a safe way you see like seaweed straws and these types of innovations that are coming out and can we get those new materials priced in a way that you know the normal people can go out and buy them right like you're every man for lack of a better way to put it 
that, they, that, that A, they understand why they want to buy them and B, you know, they're, they, can't, they can't afford to buy this innovation that's environmental friendly. We're just not there yet. So there's a lot of different, a lot of different spokes in the spokes in the wheel here that, that need to be solved and they're all being approached simultaneously. And that's why we think there's such a value of having such a broad network of organizations because each one, you know, focuses on some of these little solves along the way. So, you know, I think when we're in a situation where, you know, we can look at, look at ourselves in the mirror and be like, oh, wow, the recycling rate rates have uh, gone up, you know, seven, eight times. Uh, there's all this new, you know, these new materials that are in the flow that people are using, you know, that there's, um, you know, reg good, reg good, good regulation. There's also, um, without really going, we're going to go too deep here, but there's a really big difference between the cost of virgin plastic and the cost of recycled plastic. Recycled plastic is way more expensive right now because oil is low today. And the fracking boom in the US directly has been feeding this, right? The natural gas flow that's coming out of the US has made making new plastic incredibly cheap. And it's a, at an economic disadvantage for uh, companies that are producing and putting their stuff in, in plastic goods to use recycled plastic. So there's a bunch of initiatives out there to bring parity between these two. So it's just more advantageous to use recycled goods, recycled plastics. And that in itself is going to happen through regulation. It's going to happen through, you know, company or countries around the world um, making a stand that the, that they're going to do their best to make recycled plastics competitive with virgin plastics. Yeah. Yeah. It's super complicated. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm following it. It's, it's, I get the picture. And I think the last question and then any closing thoughts, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about making the impossible possible, you know, that, that phrase, you know, it's like any issue right now in, in that, that we have, you know, it's, we're in these, this time of convergent crises, right? This way I'm seeing it's, you know, cross sector, every sector of society, there's need for a paradigm shift and, and huge, you know, work that, that you're describing in this industry. And then in every other industry, you know, there's similar complexities and, and, and needs uh, for, for transformation. And, you know, we both, we both have little children at home. And, you know, since my son was born just, you know, a few months ago, it's even more clear to me, yes, it, it might feel impossible. And just like you were saying, just to bring it full circle, the uh, obstacle is the way, right? That it feels impossible, just the, the, whole, the whole project. And yet it's necessary, right? We, ha we have to do it, we have to make it right. So I'm just curious, you know, how you, you know, if you wanna speak more about, about that, that stoicism philosophy or just, just that sense of, your own inertia and, and any inertia that people feel um, that you work with, you know, even in moments and, and then just how do you, you know, coming, come back to that focal point of we just need to keep going and, and finding a way day by day. You know, I think it's just putting one foot in front of the other and trying to do everything that we can do to move, you know, each of these initiatives that are that are born on our convenings forward in the best way possible, and bringing the right players into the mix there. 
So yeah, like it, it does when you look at this really massive challenge that seems impossible. The way I believe it's going to get solved is through partnership, you know, and through building a community, an unlikely community, when you're, especially when you're talking about big corporations. But there's amazing people that work for these big corporations and for these big oil and gas companies and for these, you know, these big beverage companies. And for, I mean, like people that this is, they wake up every day and this is what they're working on. And they have all kinds of challenges, you know, and sometimes it can be frustrating because they have pressures that are rooted into the system that we're in that are real, right? That jobs are on the line, you know, the people's livelihoods are on the line, right? So, you know, I think it's like tapping into these, you know, you heroes that are working, you know, for a lot of these big companies and getting them to work in different ways with different, you know, getting exposed to different viewpoints. I mean, we had, you know, big petrochemical companies on the ship with people that are trying to ban plastic. And we were able to get them together and have some really interesting conversations and at least realize there's like a face behind these organizations, right? And like, that there are people that are really dedicated. And I think there's paradigms that, that are shifted there. Not to say we're ever going to be able to move these activist groups or that we even want to move these activist groups off their core issue. Or that we want to move, you know, the big petrochemical companies into a different way of thinking. I mean, there, there are some hard lines in the sand and it makes sense while they're there. But like for us, it's like, can we be this neutral convener? Can we really like come for and it's a walk in a tightrope, you know, in some degrees, but can we be this, can we just house and build the foundation for these conversations to spark and realizing that a lot of what, how we're going to get these initiatives funded is going to come from the big corporations. And a lot of times from the, from the big corporations that make plastic. So you know, I think it's like, it's like one step at a time. Again, the, the obstacle is absolutely the way. And luckily that's a great philosophy to have because I think anytime you start a business, you're get met with every obstacle that you can imagine. And it's like how we respond to those obstacles is how, uh, you know, it's kind of what defines us. So, you know, when we get hit with an op, when we get hit with a big challenge, we're like, all right, where's the, uh, you know, where's the gold here? And like when I had two of the biggest companies in the world on back to back days a year ago, tell me that their leaders knew about this issue and they didn't need to come on a boat with us. It was, it was one of the best things that ever happened to us, you know, you know, and one of those companies has since joined the network. The other, uh, the other one, uh, is the big oil company and they, I think are going to send somebody on one of our next expeditions. So like just to see and feel that movement, but realize that like we wouldn't have gotten that learn learning if we wouldn't have gotten those sort of back to back uppercuts. Yeah. And there's a moment where it feels like an uppercut and then it's like, Oh, okay. I gotta be a little quicker, you know? Yeah, there's a moment where you're like, shit, like, you know, like, yeah, it, it's like, in, like, where do we go from here? Like, this is not being perceived the way we want it to be perceived. This isn't what we're building. And then being like, oh, this is actually a huge opportunity for us to like define what we're building even further. And, you know, we had six CEOs on that ship. You know, we had really powerful decision makers that came out there with us. You know, and I mean, I guess that's part of our philosophy too. Let's make sure that we have the people that are on this, you know, on these missions with us have the ability to enact change and to move fast because that's really so many amazing organizations, but we're just not moving fast enough. So we're really looking at this network as an opportunity to move, you know, move the ball down the field, you know, quicker, you know, to move drill. This isn't like, you know, the start of the game where we have all day, right? This is like fourth, fourth, fourth. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Dave Ford. Appreciate it. And 
just any last words to you know people here in the Northeast in the Alliance that we're, we're working on on our bioregional alliance building and partnership building? Yeah, I would say like as we've built this alliance, you know, in a you know it's alliance you know in form, right? I mean, we have fifty companies to start out with. The goal. The goal is to get to 100 this year and then keep on growing from here and really build this global network is to get your kind of early champions on board and then just to stack them one after the other, right? And it's like almost like we, we call it like the domino effect. Like what domino can we knock over that will knock over the rest? And that's kind of how, that's really how we built this thing to begin with. You know, we got a couple key orgs, key believers in very early. And then we were able to leverage the collective partnership that started with one organization that went to 10, that went to 20, and then it's now at 50. And it gets easier for organizations to join when you have that critical mass, when you have that validation point. So that's the way we built it. I mean, and it's just kind of, we all kind of always like thinking like, what, what domino, what company or what NGO can we get on board that's not already a part of our network that'll help us, you know, bring the next 10 or bring the next 20 or bring a whole new sector. You know, we're looking at finance and fashion because finance is such a huge catalyst with respect to any of these environmental things. I don't know if you've read the Larry Fink letter that came out yesterday, but check it out. He's like the head of BlackRock. And they basically said that they're going to be looking really hard at their, you know, fossil fuel investments and looking at them through an environmental lens. That has huge implications globally because all these companies are dependent on the financial sector so that we need to bring them into the mix. We need to bring the fashion industry into the mix because they're, they're largely getting a free pass because so many people are focused on the single use plastic because you can see it. You can see the, the, the bottle floating down the river, but you can't see the microfibers. But what's happening in the fashion industry and what, you know, most of our clothes have plastic in some way, shape or form in them is, is really important. We're not going to get on the other side of this without having all of these stakeholders at the table working together. So, it's just, uh, you know, kind of, but with fashion or finance right now, we need to get, you know, our first few major players in. And it's the same philosophy as when we built the network and got all the consumer packaged good companies. It's like, it's like starts with critical mass. So I would just say like when you're building the alliance, your alliance, you know, your regional alliance, that's kind of more sort of squarely focused on climate. It's like find the big players, you know, and that are, that are already involved and that know each other and, just start bringing them in. And before you know it, you know, you'll have, you know, 10 organizations on and then 20 and, you know, a whole lot of critical mass. So love to help you any way I can, brother. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and connected with a valuable insight that will help you in your everyday life, nourish your deeper wisdom, and strengthen your courage to show up for the task at hand. If you'd like to say thank you, you can leave a review on iTunes, share this with a friend, and make a tax-deductible donation on our website, allianceforaviablefuture.org slash donate. Thank you so much again for supporting this vital work.
This podcast was produced by Jonas Ode and Lev Natan with sound engineering by Jonas Ode. It featured our original theme song, a rendition of ULA, an African folk song traditionally sung while paddling in unison downriver, with Jason Hoosier on guitar and vocals, with Eva Geyser on vocals and percussion, and Sean Hoots on vocals. Thank you to our guests for sharing your time and wisdom with our Alliance community. Thank you to our advisory board, Founders Circle, members, and listeners for supporting this work. Together, we are building a viable future. Yes.